Well, I want to welcome everybody, everybody joining us online on Facebook, on YouTube, at the Framley Cast, the online campus. Good to be with you. And I know some of you are going, now, who is this guy? Uh, and I understand. Uh, I haven't been up in a while. Hold your applause, those of you that are glad I haven't been up in a while. But I'm John Smith, if you're new. Uh, uh, I'm John Smith, even if you're not new, but it's good to, it's good to be here. And uh, I just want to say, Phyllis and I, we are uh, with you online enjoying these services every week, either on, a, on Thursday night or on Sunday morning like today. We take in these services, and we're so grateful, as I know you are, during this COVID pandemic to be able to come together and be inspired by music like we've been hearing uh, this morning or, or the relevant messages, being challenged by the relevant messages that Ryan Howell brings every week. And I just want to say that, uh, you know, Ryan was here just like six months as lead pastor when the COVID pandemic shut everything down in March. It would be hard to be a pastor anywhere and have your church shut down for like uh, the time that it has. Uh, but imagine if you're new, new church, new pastor, only been there six months, just getting to know everyone, and it all gets shut down. It's been very, very hard, but I know Ryan, and if you haven't met him, let me just say, Ryan is a fantastic husband. He's a loving, caring father, and Ryan, Ryan is the best preacher, the best church leader, the best Bible teacher I have ever known in my life. I think I said that the way Ryan wanted me to say it. Uh, I think I got it. Hey, make sure you get that, uh, Darren, make sure you got that on the tape. I want Ryan to hear that. I want him to invite me back here. But it's all true. And uh, I am excited to be here. And I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about one of the lessons from uh, the land of quarantine that we've all been facing this year. And the lesson I want to talk about today, it's not an easy one. Not an easy one. It's one many of us would not even want to talk about. It's a lesson many of us want to deny that we even need to learn about. We want to explain it away. But it's the lesson about race. And unless you've been living under a rock these days, you would know that racial tension is alive and well in our country, alive and well. And today I want to talk about race, racism, and uh, racial injustice. And I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it straight up. And so let's jump in. Uh, and I know I'm not the only one that was feeling uh, both sadness and anger over the murder of George Floyd on May 25th of this year in Minneapolis when the officer knelt on his neck for eight minutes, 46 seconds. I mean, that sparked national outrage, that video. When that video went viral, it sparked national outrage. And as I saw it, I thought, how much anger, how much hate does a person have to have to kneel on somebody's neck for almost nine minutes while they're crying out, I can't breathe, and calling for their mother who had died years before. And for the last three minutes, he laid motionless, had no pulse. And the officer continued to kneel on him for almost nine minutes while people around 
were pleading for him to get off of him, but he didn't. He didn't get off of him at all until the paramedics came and they told him to get off him. And of course, we know now that officer's been charged with second degree murder and, and the officers that stood around not stepping in, not stopping it, they've been charged with accessory to second degree murder. Of all the videos, uh, images that I've seen in my life, that one, that one continues to haunt me. Eight minutes, 46 seconds. That video incident sparked national outrage as well it should. Uh, you know, I think also back in uh, February of this year before the COVID uh, shutdown, I was in Montgomery, Alabama, and I stood behind the pulpit of the Dexter Avenue Memorial Baptist Church. I stood right there. And Martin Luther King Jr. was the pastor of that church from 1953 through 1960. And it was from that pulpit where I happened to be standing in February, where he began, he birthed the modern day civil rights movement back in the in the early 60s. It was from that pulpit that he inspired hundreds and thousands of people to join, join in with him. And another image that I'll never forget in my life, in my whole lifetime, was when Dr. King delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial and the March on Washington, August 28th, 1963. I know exactly where I was. Uh, I had the flu. As a, and as a child, when, when I was sick, uh, ill, I, I would be shipped from the west side to the north side of Chicago. And I would stay with my grandmother at her apartment. And it was in her kitchen, watching on her little television. We watched live TV as Dr. King delivered that speech in front of over 250,000 people. And he dreamed of a day when racial and economic injustice and equality for all would be the rule of the land. And people often forget at the core of Dr. King's life was his faith in Jesus Christ, that he was a pastor. And it was his faith in Jesus Christ that formed all that he sought to do as a civil rights leader. It was his understanding of, of texts like Luke 4, 18. And we have this for you to see. And it's also on the, the message notes on, online if you click on that, if you want to follow along. But it was his understanding of texts just like this one when Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Very few people fought for the poor like Dr. King did. And he paid a high price, high price. But he fought with courage and he fought with determination for, for food for the poor and for housing, affordable housing and education and job opportunities and voting rights. And he inspired people. And he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, racial prisoners. I mean, these are the kinds of texts that Dr. King would speak of again and again and again. And this is why. His dream did not die when he was assassinated because it was not his dream. 
It was God's dream. It's God's dream for the world. It's God's dream of the, the kingdom of God coming to earth. And if you want to stir the passion of a just God, you want to raise the ire of a just, just God, I got a plan for you. You ignore the poor. Neglect widows and orphans. Devalue somebody that, because of the color of their skin or turn away the homeless, snub the hungry, or the hurting, undocumented people. Stand by why, while innocent people are being oppressed and victimized. It doesn't take much, doesn't take much to inflame the passions of God when it comes to issues pertaining to justice. God fires up pretty quickly. God's got a hot button, like, when it comes to matters of injustice. And just to set the record straight, you know, we human beings, we human creatures, we are not perfectly just people, if you haven't noticed that already. That's why a little injustice here or there doesn't bother us that much. No, the ongoing oppression, bigotry, racism, hatred, violence that we see in our world, oh, it may catch our attention. It may catch our attention, but rarely does it cut us so deep, cut us all the way to the core of who we are. Very rarely does it cut us so deeply that it catalyzes us into radical action of, of justice, justice. As Brian Stevenson said in the book, Just Mercy, the opposite of poverty is not wealth, it's justice, justice. Dr. King fought for that justice. Let me, let me ask this question of everybody. Everybody, have you, have you ever wondered how you would have responded as certain struggle that was going on at one point in history? Do you ever wonder how you would have responded? I've thought about things like that. You know, like, uh, like say I'm a Christ follower, or you're a Christ follower, and you're living in Germany during World War II, and the Nazis are rounding up Jewish people. Do you ever wonder how you would have responded? I've wondered things like that. Or... Do you ever wonder how you would have responded to the civil rights movement of the 60s? Things like that. I asked God, how would I have responded? And you know what God says to me when I ask that question today? God says to me, John, John, this is your moment in history. This is your moment right now in history. This is the time for you. And the division in our country due to partisanship, the racial divide that's taken place in our country should be deeply disheartening. Remaining silent, God has said, is no longer an option. No longer an option. It's time. It's actually past time to talk about and do something about this stuff. God hates this stuff. Hates it. You know, a while ago, a few years ago, I'm reading uh, the New Testament. I, I came across a portion of scripture that I had, I had read many times. It's where Jesus cleanses the temple. Some of you, you know that, that passage. You've read that, some of you. Well, there's this corrupt kind of commercialism that's taking place in the temple. So Jesus went in and he overturns the table, tables and he chased out these money changers, gets them all out of there. And then he said these famous words. You could see these words. Mark 11, 17. 
He says, it's not written that my house will be called a house. Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? In those last four words are what struck me. For all nations. And usually when churches talk about this passage of scripture, the only explanation you hear is that there were those money changers. Jesus wanted them out of there. But if you look closely, like I did a few years ago, you see that there was another injustice going on. There was another wrong taking place in that temple at that time that needed to be righted. Certainly there, there, there was the corrupt money changers. They had to be thrown out. Jesus took care of that. But Jesus noticed something else. Jesus said, not only is there economic corruption going on in the temple, he said, but my house is no longer a house of prayer for all nations. Apparently the Jews just had squeezed out people of other races, people from other nations. The church, the church had, if you will, become unicultural, uniethnic, uniracial. Jesus said, that's not my dream. That's not God's dream for this world. Not at all. And I want the church to lead the way. I want the church to be the model for this world. It's to be a house of prayer. A house of prayer for all. All nations. All nations. All races. All ethnicities. All people. All people. And in fact, the, the killing of George Floyd was no, no singular isolated incident. It rather, it grew out of centuries of hatred and sin. It's been rightly said that racism is America's original sin. It's true. It's true. Racism is a, a deep infection. It's a deep infection that we have to deal with. It's not been dealt with. That's why it keeps coming back again and again and again. And here's the lesson. The lesson is this, the wrong, long road towards healing involves honesty. The long road towards healing involves honesty and truth-telling before God, before one another, and within our own souls. And I've done a lot of reading about race over the last five years. I've done a lot of reading about it. And in my reading, I, I saw our country's history for what it really is. And I saw the oppression of African-Americans in a way I had never seen before. And it brought to light what, one, what another author said, and I'll quote him here. The United States of America was established as a white society founded on the genocide of one race and then built on the enslavement of yet another. And let me be clear, I love our country. Let me be real clear about that. I love our country. I'd, I would rather live in the United States than any country in the world. And I think at times, our country in our past at times has been the most noble country on the planet. But I don't like parts of our country's past. I don't like parts of it. Parts of our country's past are a problem. They've been a problem. And it's time we face up to it. 
we have to realize, we have to realize that the, you know, the glorified version, uh, many of us grew up uh, being taught that the, in elementary school that the British came over and they were nice to the Indians and they had Thanksgiving together, uh, dinner together, and it all went very well. It's not true. I mean, friends, you look at history, what really happened? You find out the British came over and they annihilated hundreds of thousands of Native Americans so that they could take their land from them. They introduced smallpox intentionally to some of those Native American villages to kill them all. And when they killed enough of them to vacate the land so they could start the country on, they needed a labor force. And so they didn't know what to do. So they, you know what they did? They built ships and they sailed them over to the Ivory Coast of Africa where entire clans of families, men, women, children, grandparents were kidnapped and dragged down and loaded onto boats. And halfway across the ocean, about a third of them, about a third of the slaves that were transported from Africa, they died. And you know what they did with their bodies when they died aboard those ships? They pitched them overboard in full view of their wives, wives and children, full view of all of them, all of them. And when those ships arrived from that trip, when they landed on this side, then those people that were still surviving, they were cleaned up, they were sprayed off, they were put on an auction block and sold like cattle. That's the truth. That's the truth of our history. And if that had lasted like a decade and that wrong had been righted, we'd feel less shame about it. Conditions today would be, would be much better, I believe. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened. Not at all. That went on for about 350 years. And God watched it all. God watched as white men worked black men into exhaustion on their farms. Then at night, the whites would rape the wives and daughters of those guys that they had worked to death. And God watched it all. And it kindled God's passion like it's kindling mine more and more and more these days. I mean, everybody loves reconciliation, right? Everybody loves talking about reconciliation until, until you start talking about truth-telling and repenting and confession and forgiveness and peacemaking. But none of that's happened. None of that's happened. So, so Charleston happened when nine people were murdered in a Bible study by a white nationalist. And then Charlottesville happened. Then Sandra Bland happened in Texas. And then the killing of Maude Arbery in Georgia in February, that happened. And then it was Breonna Taylor, a black woman, fatally shot by, by police during a raid on her home in Kentucky. They had raided the wrong house. And this month, Rayshard Brooks, fatally shot in Atlanta. Another violent encounter between a black man and a police officer captured on video. It, it inflamed the national tension over race. And now it's Elijah McClain. We're hearing his story in Aurora here in Colorado. And protests continued. And they will continue. Black Lives Matter protests now 
are going on with people of all races, all backgrounds who are saying enough, enough is enough. And it's gonna keep growing across our country. And friends, the result of this century old oppression, it's still going on. I mean, do you know in a recent study of the Pew Research Center, they found that the median household wealth for white Americans today is around $142,000. Not income, wealth. Wealth. For African Americans, it's 11,000. And I didn't misquote that at all. White households are 13 times richer than black households. And they own 18 times as much. And as I speak, the infant mortality rate among blacks is more than double that of whites. Did you know a black boy born today in the United States has a life expectancy five years shorter, shorter than a white boy? And the death rate for a black boy born today in Washington, D.C., Mississippi, and Alabama is higher than a boy born today in India or Bangladesh. And did you know 72% of whites today can afford to own and live in their own home? For blacks, it's 42%. And did you know 10% of whites live officially below the poverty line? For blacks, it's 28%. And that income gap today is growing. The black-white income gap today is 40 times greater than it was in 1967. And did you know one in three black males will go to jail in their lifetime. Statistically, a black male is more likely to end up in prison than to go to college. And the subject I'm talking about right now, it's very close to the heart of God. It cuts right at the heart of what God stands for. The inequality that exists, it's serious business. And we whites, we whites, uh, what do we do? We often refuse to believe those statistics. Or more commonly, what we do, we explain them away somewhere. I agree. I think the first time in my life, I agree with Newt Gingrich, the 50th Speaker of the House of Representatives. In the documentary 13th, this is what he said. Virtually no white person understands what it's like to be black in America. And I agree with that. No white person understands what it's like to be black in America. I don't. I don't understand what it's like. I'm not saying I do. My life serves as an example of this. I didn't get it at all. I still don't understand it, but I didn't even get it. My reading opened my eyes. My reading opened my eyes that I didn't get it and didn't understand. I'll confess how little I got it. When Crossroads started 24 years ago, our church was 99% white. We didn't even think that was a problem. That went on for over 12 years. Was not even an issue. Despite God's clear direction, his house is to be a house for all nations, all races. Martin Luther King, he said it. He said in his sermon, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, that's the most, most segregated hour of the week. And I admit, I was guilty of that. I was guilty of leading a church in all of that. Even though I know Genesis 127 that, that says God created human beings, created us all in his image, in the image of God, male and female. He created all of us. 
all people created in the image of God. And we have said for years, we'll never look into the eyes of another human being that does not carry that divine DNA. Everyone's created in the image of God. We'll never look into the eyes of a person for whom Christ did not die. And that means we're to embrace, we're to welcome and affirm every person. I mean, when we see that happening, when we see that spirit of welcoming happening, we love it. We love it. When we don't see it happening somewhere in society, it ought to kill us. And white supremacy, racism, denies that, that divine DNA in every human being, denies the dignity of every human being, negates the gospel. It ignores the fact that we're all created in the image of God. In the image of God, all created. The image of God is not confined to one culture, one nationality at all. Not at all. And this stuff I'm speaking about, I know. I know it splits churches right down the middle. This stuff splits families. This is the kind of stuff causes fights at school, and neighborhoods, and bombings. This is stuff that has to be talked about. It's got to be exposed. It's got to be rooted out of my heart. It's got to be rooted out of yours and all of us. And I think today would be a good time. This would be a good day to start the rooting process. And let there be no doubt about it. Love is the supreme value of the Christian faith. That's what it's all about. Love is the supreme value of the Christian faith. One day Jesus was challenged. Boil Christianity down to its essence. He said, that's easy. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love people. You love God and love people, you can get a lot of other things wrong in this life. The Apostle Paul one time made a list of the qualities the Holy Spirit wants most to generate in the life of a Christ follower. Top of the list, Galatians 5.22 says, the number one quality is love. And Martin Luther King reminded people all the time about the centrality of love. He used to love to sprinkle these words in his speeches. He'd say, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Hate will never drive out hate. Only love can do that. Only love. It's all about love. Love for all people, Dr. King would assert. And always remember, always remember the ultimate test of a transformed life is a loving heart. The ultimate test of a transformed life is a loving, compassionate heart. And as people of God, we're to be about love and mercy and compassion and kindness and justice, justice. That's what we're to be about. As people of God, we're to, we're to be people with eyes that see the crowds around us and what people are going through. We're to be people that have ears that listen, listen to the pleas of the oppressed. And my, we're to have minds that understand, seek to understand what people are going through. And then hands that figure out a way to help. And this is not about politics. This is not about politics. This is not about left or right. This is a matter of right, right and wrong. It's about right or wrong. 
My friend Gary, Gary Walter, he's fond of saying, he's fond of saying, we don't follow an elephant and we don't follow a donkey. We follow a lamb, a lamb. And the lamb of God understands what it is to be a victim of oppression. Jesus was a refugee before his first birthday. He was born into a refugee family fleeing to Egypt for safety. He was raised in a Jewish home. By the way, uh, Christian, white nationalists, Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, was a dark-skinned Jewish man from the Middle East who spoke Aramaic, did not speak English. He lived in a conquered, colonized country by the Roman Empire. He healed a woman, a woman from Syria's daughter, and his cross was carried by Simon the Cyrene from the continent of Africa. He was fluent in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. The incarnation, God coming to earth, was impossible without a woman. His death on the cross was witnessed by women. His resurrection was first announced by women, all in a culture where women were among the most, the most marginalized, most discriminated against. And he made a hated Samaritan the start, the hero of his most famous story. And an enemy soldier, a Roman centurion, Jesus commended as having the greatest faith, the greatest faith. And when Jesus came along, he announced his ministry. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He anointed me to proclaim, preach good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And Jesus's walk matched his talk. And his ministry corresponded precisely with these words of Luke 4. And Jesus spent most of his time he spent most of his time, not with the rich and powerful, but with the poor, with the suffering, and the oppressed. And it's Jesus' words in John 20, 21. Jesus' words in John 20, 21 have haunted me my entire adult life. When Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I send you. As the Father has sent me, I send you to set the oppressed free, to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind, to feed the hungry, to care for foreigners. So I, I send you. And we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. This is our hour. But we have a long way to go. Long way to go to level the, the field. We do. When it comes to justice, doing justice, like Micah 6, 8 says, we're to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. When it comes to doing justice, about racial injustice, we're not to just, we're not to just love across racial lines. We gotta figure out a way to level the, level the opportunity field once and for all. It's incumbent upon all of us to do our part to do our part, to make things right. And I think in our church here, I think in our church, I don't think I'm the only one. I think there are many, many people here who want to stand up and do our part. 
And in closing, I want to give you a few practical ideas. Things you can do, and the first are just about raising awareness. But I, I think they're important. Uh, read. Here's the first one. Read about racial injustice. Read books. That's what turned the light on for me. Three books I'm suggesting, and you can write these down. One is the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. If you haven't read it, read that book, Just Mercy. A second one I'm, that I think is very challenging very enlightening. It's called White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin D'Angelo. Read that book, White Fragility. And a third one, Me and White Supremacy, very enlightening book. Me and White Supremacy, Combat Racism, Change the World, Become a Good Ancestor by Leila Saad. And also, I'd say watch films. Watch films about racial injustice. Watch that documentary on Netflix, 13th, that I mentioned just a little bit ago. Watch that documentary. Watch the film Just Mercy or Selma if you've not read. Watch those. Here's the third one I'd ask you to risk establishing uh, relationships across racial and ethnic lines. Risk that. If we're ever going to significantly manifest the beauty of God's diverse humanity. It's, it's going to take place one life at a time. And reach out, cross ethnic and cultural lines. And I know it can be a challenge during COVID and that, but, but risk building a relationship across a racial ethnic line. Reach out to people. And I'll close with this one. Pray for the day when ra- racial injustice dies. Pray for the day when racial injustice dies a death it should have died centuries ago. Pray for the day when, as Martin Luther King said so eloquently, that people would be judged no longer by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Pray for that day. day. Say, God, may that day come soon. And pray for the day when, as Jesus said, my house will be a house for all nations, for all people, for everyone, every race, every ethnicity, every sexual orientation, rich, poor, all together. That's God's dream. And pray for the crossroads. Pray for the leaders here at this church. Pray for the day when our our church reflects the full richness of God's diversity. Pray for that day. And if, if you really want to Pray a bold prayer. Pray the one that I've been praying. Pray this one. I pray, God, give me courage. Give me courage to stand up for people that are oppressed. Whenever I see it happening, help me to stand up for people that have been victimized by this racist system that we've all grown up in and we've all been touched by, all of us. And pray, God, may I be the first one in any social setting to reach a hand across a racial divide. I mean, that's how bridges get built. That's how racial injustice gets diffused over time. But there's something that we can all do and something we all have to do. Racial injustice breaks the heart of God. And God raises up his, his daughters and his sons And God says, through my power, through my spirit, 
Right these wrongs. Right these wrongs. Put an end to this stuff once and for all. And I'll bless every single effort along the way. Let's pray together. If you bow your head with me and let's pray. God, we've heard your word and we're reminded of your great love. And God, as we continue forward on this journey as, a, as individuals, as a church, as a nation, I pray for the day when we're radically loving and accepting people of, of everyone, where everyone feels it, where everyone has equal opportunity. And may this church be a church where all nationalities, all races, ethnicities, ages, income levels, sexual orientation can feel not just welcome, but that they belong and that this is the place for them. And may we, we then all together link arms with one another. And we ask that you use us to write this stuff, God. That's our prayer. And it's a big one. But we know, God, you can answer it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.